Yeah, my name is Joe, and uh, if you haven't met me before, um, I get to serve as one of the pastors here, and uh, Charles and I have been good friends for a long time, and we really tested that friendship this weekend, and I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about that in a second. Uh, a few months ago, I was doing a message on gluttony, and I needed a sermon illustration. Well, I started looking on the internet, and I found a picture of a guy, and he's shoveling donuts into his face, right? And I was like, this, okay, this is, does it, and I was like, why is he wearing, uh, you know, running clothes, and he has a runner's bibob, and I found out there's this race called the Krispy Kreme Challenge, where you run two and a half miles, you eat 12 Krispy Kreme donuts, and then you run two and a half miles back. And I thought, well, for added effect for this sermon illustration, I'm going to register for this thing. And then I voluntold Charles he was going to do it with me. So Friday, we drove eight and a half hours to Raleigh, North Carolina, Saturday morning, got up, did the race. Yeah. Two and a half miles out, I had to eat 12 donuts as fast as possible, run two and a half miles back. We hopped in the car and drove eight and a half hours back here to Norwalk, and now I'm preaching here this morning. So uh, it, was, it was something else. I mean, I felt, oh, yeah, thanks. <laughs> I think that's the first time you've ever applauded somebody eating 12 donuts. Uh, man, I'll tell you what, I was full. Nothing hits the spot like a dozen donuts. I mean, it, you're full. For, you're done eating for the day. And... Uh, so, so we, you know, we made it. Uh, we didn't die. That was the goal. Uh, but you and I are going to die. Pretty encouraging way to start this message, right? Yeah, that's, that's, I mean, that's the truth, right? Uh, it, we, we don't like to talk about it. We don't like to think about it. But the truth is that you and I are going to die. Mortality rate is still like 100%. It's going to happen. You know, and, and because of that, we have tried throughout history to answer a very, very important question. And that question is, well, what happens after you die? Right? And we have tried to answer this question through the lens of science, uh, ph philosophy, uh, medicine, and religion. And thankfully, crew.org uh, put out a survey to try to answer this question, what happens when you die? Uh, this is the article they wrote. They said phys or physicist Stephen Hawking com compared death to a computer that stops working when it breaks. He thought of the afterlife as a fairy tale, right? And I don't know about you, but I, I don't think it's very comforting to think of yourself as a computer that just breaks one day. It goes on, ancient philosophers like Socrates and Plato believed that when the body died, the soul lived on. And then atheist philosophers like Marx, Lenin, Nietzsche did not believe in an afterlife. They viewed belief in the afterlife as in conflict with living life to the fullest. And then it goes on, even religion tries to answer this. Uh, in Islam, Muslims believe that people have immortal souls, and after death, the, the destination of the soul depends on a person's good and bad deeds. How does that weigh out? And then lastly, uh, in general, Buddhism teaches that eternal individual souls do not exist, but that after death, people usually experience reincarnation based upon their actions and their desires in this life. A lot of different theories out there about what happens after you die. Well, as we continue our message series in the book of 1 Thessalonians, Paul is going to answer this question from the scripture's perspective in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13, all the way through 5 11. And I'm going to tell you that it's pretty different. It stands apart from what philosophers or other religions have to say. So if you brought your Bible with you, would you do me a favor, turn to, to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Uh, if you uh, want to use your phone, you're more than welcome to do that. And then uh, we'll also have the text for you 
on the screen. But here's what Paul says. He says, and now, dear brothers and sisters, when he's talking, when he says dear brothers and sisters, he's talking about Christians, so this applies to us as well. We want you to know what will happen to the believers who have died, so you will not grieve like people who have no hope. You know, one of the hardest things about life is saying our final goodbyes to the people that we love. And I've had to experience this with my own friends, my own family. As a pastor, I've had the honor and the privilege to come alongside people as they hold their hands or hug their loved ones to say those final goodbyes. And what I've learned along the way, and I imagine that you have as well if you've experienced this, is that that final goodbye is just the start of sometimes a very long and difficult grieving process. And it's well known uh, that the Kubler-Ross grieving process is made up of five stages. There's denial, there's anger, there's depression, bargaining, and then acceptance, right? Those who have experienced grief would probably agree with those steps, but they would understand that the process looks a lot more like this. It's not a linear progression. It's back and forth. It's all over the place. And if the Apostle Paul were here today, I think he would agree with these five stages of grief, but I think he would say that there is one key word that's missing. Because he said, so you will not grieve like people who have no hope. You will not grieve that people have no hope. Paul would say that we ought to experience these five stages of grief like everyone else, but what should be unique and different about grief as a Christian is that it is dominated by this word hope. And Paul builds his case for why we, even in something as terrible as death, should have hope. He says, For since we believe that Jesus died and was raised to life again, we also believe that when Jesus returns, God will bring back with him the believers who have died. And then in chapter 5, Paul essentially repeats himself in order to drive this point home. He says, for God chose to save us through our Lord Jesus Christ, not to pour out his anger on us. Christ died for us so that whether we are dead or alive, when he returns, we can live with him forever. So other religions and philosophers believe that you have to be a good and moral person to have even a shot at the afterlife, to have a shot at heaven, right? And I don't know anything more hopeless than this because I am far from a good person. In fact, I'm the opposite. I'm, I'm a self-absorbed mess. And you, you might be thinking, you know, well, like, you're a pastor. You're like a professional Christian. If you can't, you know, do this, then I don't have a chance. And I'm, you're right. If it's based on my morality, I have no chance, and neither do you. But Paul says that Jesus, what Jesus has come to do has nothing to do with our performance. It has to do for, with his. Because Jesus wasn't, wasn't a moral person. Jesus wasn't a good person. Jesus was perfect. He was perfect. And he died on the cross for people who aren't good enough, which is me and every single one of you. And now you may not believe that. You might think that you're a pretty decent person. You know, compared to, you know, the standards that you have set or kind of the standards of our culture, you're not a bad, you're not a bad person, right? But, but we're not talking about our culture. We're talking about God. And so you even take, like, go to the simplest commands, the, the, the Ten Commandments. What does it say? 
Well, do not steal, do not kill, do not lie, do not covet other people's stuff. We'll just go with those four. Well, you don't have to be any older than a toddler and you start breaking that stuff, right? And so when you stand before God and he holds up his law, none of us will be innocent. Every one of us will be guilty of breaking those laws. Except for Jesus. He was perfect. And yet he died a criminal's death. And he was buried and everyone expected him to stay in the grave. Why? Because that's what dead people do. But after three days, he was raised to life. And in that, he was guaranteeing that the grave was not the last stop, that death had no hold on him, that the grave was temporary and not just for Jesus, because the Bible teaches that for all who trust and believe in Jesus, the same is true for you that the grave is not your last stop. I love the way Dr. Dr. Uh, Whitmer puts it, Dr. Michael Whitner puts it in his book, The Last Enemy. He says this, you may shiver as you walk through the shadow of death, but the shadow itself is cast by the light, by the bright light of the resurrection. So go ahead and weep, but only as someone who knows how the story ends. It doesn't. It doesn't. Now, if you're like me, I wouldn't say I walk around most of my days with this thought of hope at the front of my mind, right? I get caught up in the worries of this life and the busyness and all of this, and I, and I find myself starting to live for things that are only for here, and I forget, you know, I let life consume me and the worries of this life consume me, and I forget about the, fact, the reality of the hope that is to come. And Jesus knows that about us. And so in his grace, he gave us a physical, tangible reminder of this hope. It's what we call communion. And so we're going to celebrate communion together as a church family this morning. So you were handed these, or you gathered these on your way in. If you didn't get them, you could just raise your hand right now real quick, and one of our greeters would be happy to bring that over to you. And here at the chapel, taking part in communion is for anybody who is a follower of Jesus. If you are a Christian, if you would consider yourself someone who loves and knows and follows Jesus, then this is for you. But here's, here's how it goes. You know, Jesus is getting to the end of his life, and he knows that he's going to, to march into Jerusalem and experience the crucifixion. And so he gets his 12 disciples, his closest friends together for one last meal. And he says this. He says, he took the bread, and he gave thanks, and he broke it. And he gave it to them, saying, this is my body given for you. And so this bread, if you peel back the first layer of your cup, you'll find this bread. This bread is a physical, tangible representation of the body of Jesus that was broken for me and for you and for you and for you and for you. He says, take this and eat it in remembrance of me. Let's take this together. If you peel back the next layer, Jesus went on. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. This represents the blood of Jesus that was shed for the covenant 
so that we can be forgiven of everything that we have ever done, everything that we will ever do. It is finished on the cross. Jesus shed his blood for me and for you and for you and for you and for you. Let's do this in remembrance of him. Jesus, you know that I am not someone who always considers the hope that I have in you, that I'm so easily distracted by this life, by things that ultimately won't matter. God, would you help me and everyone here to continue to remember the beauty of the gospel, what you have done for us, that you gave your life for us, that you took away our sins, that you gave us forgiveness, and that you promise eternal life for everyone who trusts in you. God, would you settle that into our hearts? In Jesus' name, amen. You know, communion really is a reminder of hope. And Paul goes on to continue to develop this idea of hope. He explains what to come, what's to come, and how we ought to live in the meantime. Now, because Paul's words have been so misquoted and misinterpreted over, over the years, I want to read this in its entirety and then explain what Paul is actually getting at here. So in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 14 through 18, he says this. He says, we tell you this directly from the Lord. We who are still living when the Lord returns will not meet him ahead of those who died. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a commanding shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God. First, the believers who have died will rise from their graves. Then together with them, we who are still alive and remain on the earth will be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Then we will be with the Lord forever. So encourage each other with these words. He continues this in chapter 5, verses 1 through 3. Now, concerning how and when this will happen, dear brothers and sisters, we don't really need to write you. For you know quite well that the day of the Lord's return will come unexpectedly, like a thief in the night. When people are saying everything is peaceful and secure, then disaster will fall on them as suddenly as a pregnant woman's labor pains begin. And there will be no escape. You know, this idea of Jesus returning, the truth of this, so many people have tried to speculate when this is going to happen. You know, there was a guy, uh, you know, 12, 13 years ago named Harold Camping, uh, who predicted, who was so confident that the world was going to end on May 11, 2011, that he put up over 32 hundred billboards around the world, just like this one, to scare, I mean, to encourage people to turn, to turn to Jesus, right? And I remember this day. I remember waking up on May 21st, 2011. I was like, oh no, I'm still here. I missed it, right? But then I looked over at my wife and I was like, okay, she's still here. And I was like, well, what if she's not a Christian? You know, I don't know about her. I was like, I got to call like a real Christian, you know, like Pastor Dave or Pastor Char, Pastor Dave. Uh, it's like, I got to know, somebody I know is like, all right. Well, I don't, we're all still here, right? So I don't think I have to tell you that, that, that he was wrong. 
What's worse is he said that the Bible guaranteed this was going to happen. Well, the Bible didn't say that. In fact, this idea, this speculation about when it's going to happen is the furthest thing from Paul's mind when he's writing these events to the church in Thessalonica. That's why we must read it through the lens of the author and the context of when it was written instead of trying to make it say what we want it to say. Because Paul literally says, so encourage each other with these words. And then he goes on again just a few verses later, encourage each other and build each other up. This passage is about encouragement. Well, why do they need encouragement? Because the church, this church is suffering and being persecuted for their faith. Paul wants them to see beyond their present circumstances to something greater. Paul wants to give them hope. And he wants to give us hope. Paul is, it wants them to see to a future where Jesus will bring heaven to earth. He wants them to see something greater than what's going on right now. And for you, I don't know what your life has been like. I don't know what your week has been like. I don't know what your morning has been like. If you've got little kids, it probably wasn't awesome trying to get them ready for church. You know, maybe you've coming in and you're struggling and all you can focus on is all of the junk going on in your life right now. These words from Paul are intended to give you hope to see beyond your current circumstances to something greater. That there is a future, there is a hope coming where this earth will be remade, where there be an everlasting state of peace and life between God and his people. There will be no more pain, no more disease, no more cancer, no more mental illness, no more fighting or wars, no more death. There are no funerals in heaven. There are no funerals in the new creation. And who will rule and reign with Jesus? Those who have put their trust in him. Those who truly believe in their hearts that he died and that he rose again. And so since we understand that the church is suffering and Paul's desire is to bring them hope, we can now understand the details of what he writes. Again, Paul is telling them what will happen when Jesus returns, not when it will happen. He says, first, believers who have already died will be resurrected. Now, if you're like me, I immediately think of something crazy like the walking dead, right? Like, is this like zombies? I don't know. It's, it's weird. But, but instead, just as Jesus rose from the grave with a healed body, a new healed body, you and I, too, will have the same thing. Again, it's about Paul pointing us to a hope-filled future. And it says, then... Those who are alive will be caught up in the air and be with Jesus forever. And I think this is the, the oddest part about this, right? And, and this word caught up, um, the Latin word for it is raptus. That's where we get the English word rapture. And there have been a lot of books and movies written about the rapture. But we need to be careful that we don't let those details overtake the purpose of what Paul is saying here. Because Paul's point is to remind the church then and us now that when Jesus returns someday, it's going to be in the midst of, an, of a period of intense pain and suffering when it seems like there is no hope whatsoever. But Jesus' promise for the church is that those who trust in him, both dead and alive, will be united with each other and with Jesus. Jesus will defeat suffering and death once and for all, and we will be with him forever. That is the point of this. 
Because you see, Harold Camping wasn't wrong when he said that the end is coming. And he wasn't wrong when he says we should put our trust in Jesus. Because when Jesus returns, he will bring judgment. Paul says when people are saying everything is peaceful and secure, then disaster will fall on them as suddenly as a pregnant woman's labor pains begin. And there will be no escape. The reality is, church, is that people who have turned their back on Jesus in their hearts, through their attitudes, through their words, and through their actions, they believe that they think they're just fine, but, the, but they will quickly realize that there is a God, and they are not him. And putting one's faith in Jesus is the only way to escape this. But being obsessed with when it happens is completely missing the point. Because even Jesus said that he didn't know the day or the time. He said, however, no one knows the day or the hour when these things will happen. Not even the angels in heaven or the son himself. Only the father knows. And and Paul goes on to, to support this. He says, now concerning how and when all this will happen, dear brothers and sisters, we don't really need to write you because the question of when is not important. He says, for you know quite well that the day of the Lord's return will come unexpectedly. It's not when that is important to Jesus or Paul, but you, do, but you want to know what is important? How? How? How will you live your life as a Christ follower between now and then? Will you live with that hope in mind? Will you live with that hope in mind, or will you live for the things in this life that in 100 years will not matter anymore? Will you live for Jesus or will you live for comfort and achievement and admiration and appearance? I'm just naming my own. These are the things that tend to, that I get caught up in because I forget about the hope that we have. You know, will you live for a greater purpose? Will you live with that hope in mind? Or are you just going to circle the wagons and try to protect you and your family and just like try to ride this thing out until Jesus gets here? There's a better way to live. And I want to challenge you with these words from Paul. He says, but you are in the dark about these things, dear brothers and sisters. And you won't be surprised when the day of the Lord comes like a thief. For you are all children of the light and of the day. We don't belong to the darkness and the night. So be on your guard, not asleep like the others. Stay alert and be clear-headed. Night is the time when people sleep and drinkers get drunk, but but let us who live in the light be clear-headed, protected by the armor of faith and love, and wearing as our helmet the confidence of our salvation. How will you live? Because the world is a dark place, right? Let's just be honest. And it doesn't seem like it's, it's moving in a better direction. And it, it's a dark place because they don't know how the story ends. But we do. We do. We know what the, we, we have hope because we know what the final chapter says. Jesus wins. He has defeated the grave once and for all. And we live in a darkened world where they don't know it. So what will you do? Will you circle the wagons and try to protect yourself and just ride it out until Jesus gets here? 
or use what God has given you, your, your, your words, your talents, your resources, your time, your energy, to go out there and spread this good news, to share this hope with people who don't know it. Why? Because, like I said, we're all gonna die. Nobody's calendar goes on forever. Christian author Lewis Smedes write up, writes up, write up, wrote about the concept of how our lives are made up of squares, or boxes. So the idea is this. Look at a calendar, right? It's filled with boxes or squares. And each box is a frame for one day of your life. Nobody knows how many boxes you're gonna, they're going to have, but we do get to choose how we fill those boxes. And you also don't know if you're going to have another box. I did the math and I've had 15,868 boxes. 15,868 days, including today. And I cannot say with absolute certainty that I'm going to get another box tomorrow, and neither can you. Now, often our boxes don't look like they, we had hoped they would, and we don't have as many as we would like. We live in one box at a time, and let's be honest, as we get older, it seems like the boxes get smaller. And one of those boxes will be the last. And we don't get to choose which box it's going to be. But that final box will come. And there's only two options for it. The first one is another box. And I don't mean to be crude, but, but whether it's a casket or a box for your remains, it's, it's a box. And then according to God's word, there's nothing. But forever spent separated from God and others and all that is good. The second possibility is that when you walk into that final box... It's not a box at all, but it turns out to be a door. The four walls of the box fall away, and you, the life you thought was ending is actually just beginning. And that box is a door into a new world where God will make everything right. And so it's up to you how you fill your boxes. It's also up to you whether your last box will be just that, another box. Or, through faith in Jesus, a door to life forever. But how can I confidently say that I know that that's true? Well, Jesus said something to Mary when her brother Lazarus had died. He says this, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live even after dying. Everyone who lives in me and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this, Martha? And Martha's answer was a resounding yes. What is your answer? What is your answer? You might say, well, how do I know I can even trust that? Well, author John Ortberg sums up this text by saying this. No sane human would say something like that. No religious leader could say that. Buddha never said that. Muhammad never said that. Confucius never said that. Jesus said that. And he proved it was true by his resurrection. So my question is, do you believe this? And if you do, will you live out the hope that we truly have? Father God, I stand before you as someone who is so inclined to be distracted by this life, by the worries, by the pleasures, by the busyness, 
God and I can often forget that, that there is something greater to live for. To use what you have given me to share hope. To share hope. God, we are ambassadors of your loving and transforming and healing grace into a broken world. Help us to live that way. To not try to stay protected and just waiting until you return, God, but to go out and to share hope into a broken and dark world. And for those, God, who have not said yes to Jesus' question, do you believe this? Would you just stir in their hearts, God, the desire to trust in you, to give their lives fully to you so that they can experience that same hope? In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, thank you all so much for being here. I hope you have a great week.